This is the Sport Lifestyle Podcast, where the trade of sport collides with fashion and innovation. Your hosts, Mike Gugat, Neil Schwartz, and John Peters, break down news, discuss trends, and interview industry influencers. The Sport Lifestyle Podcast is on now. Are you a business leader looking for top talent? Hiring the right executive level talent while scaling a company is one of the hardest things to do. That's why many growth companies in the sports, fitness, and technology industries trust Arate Partners, the executive search firm for emerging talent. Arate Partners is the only executive search firm in the nation specializing in head of, director level, and vice president level talent for seed to series B companies. Arate is trusted by some of the world's best investors in the country and fastest growing startups in the world. When you're looking for experienced search partners with deep networks in the sports and technology industries, contact Arate Partners and be sure to visit them at www.aretepartners.com. Let's get to the show. I'm Mike Gugat with the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. In this episode, we speak with Luke Rowe, Senior Vice President at CEP Compression. I've known Luke going on 20 years now. Luke cut his teeth working and run in tennis specialty retail, later jumping out of airplanes with the 82nd Airborne. Following the Army, Luke joined Brooks Sports, working his way up to VP of Sales. Luke would make one more stop at Fleet Feet to lead the business development team before joining CEP. Luke is someone I've respected for a very long time and recently grew to like when I stopped working with him. You can insert the laughing emoji here. Enjoy the show. All right, Luke Rowe, where exactly are you at this moment? I'm sitting in our uh, offices. We work in a shared office space called Spaces uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We're about a quarter mile off of uh, the campus of UNC. And now as a, a, a former paratrooper in the 82nd, I was kind of expecting you to give me exact coordinates. like you. <laughs> well, I can, I can tell you we're, we're about 75 miles from where I used to jump a lot at Fort Bragg. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you would know this area well, Mike, you, you've come down and visited Fleet Feet here quite a bit and, uh, yeah. it's, uh, where the Aloft is located. So it's, it's a good, it's a really nice area and it's a 12 minute commute. And the first few years I worked for CEP, I had an hour commute. So I, I like, I like the new location. It's nice to be uh, close. Well, speaking of, uh, you know, I made the army reference, but, uh, you know, as, as head of CEP today, um, you've also held executive roles at Fleet Feet and Brooks and, uh, you know, but running has been central to all of this. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what running still means to you, what it meant to you then and how it's kind of uh, set up this career you've had? Yeah, it's funny. I think I've had a um, a hate-love relationship. I use that, that correctly because back when I was little, I had a lot of older brothers and sisters. I'm one of 10 kids. And um, we moved to Maryland in 1970. And my sister Dottie was quite the runner. And uh, she was following in the footsteps of another brother who had graduated when we were still up in Massachusetts and gone off to college. But Dottie was a phenomenal runner, but my dad would never let her run by herself. Um, uh, back in this is 1970. And runners were unusual back then. Um, you know, we think of today, like, it's not uncommon to see a runner, but back then, you know, people wondered what you were running from. And <laughs> to have a female running through Gaithersburg, where we grew up, um, 
you know, just wasn't uh, something my dad was going to do. So he used to make the kids go running with her. I'm, I'm not sure what a 10-year-old Luke was going to do to defend my sister, but I hated it, and I wasn't very good at it. Um, now, my little sister, Hannah, she got really good at it. So between Hannah and Dottie, they, they became world-class in their age groups. Um, I did not. I think I actually finished last once in a age group uh, junior Olympics race. But it, it got me running. It got me out there. We go to the, the Roadrunner Club America races in D.C., D.C. Roadrunners, um, almost every single weekend. And uh, that kind of led me into high school where all of a sudden I blossomed. You know, I was a 420 miler in high school. Uh, ran a two mile fairly quickly. I was never the best guy on my team, but I was good. And, um, you know, that kind of got me more interested. And, uh, you know, when I joined the army, all of a sudden running was uh, a huge skill set to have. If, uh, I was in the 82nd over here at Fort Bragg. And, you know, I, at those times I was still running uh, like around a 932 mile. And so that made me blazing fast in military uh, terms. So, um, Wait, did you say 932? Wait, what was the 930? Yeah, 930s, two mile for a two mile. Oh, two we mile, used... two mile, two mile. I just want to make sure we qualified that. I was yeah, no, was we like used to have to do the yeah, the PT test is changing in the army, but it used to be a two mile run, push-ups and sit-ups. And uh you can run a 930 two mile back in 1981, 82, 83. People paid attention to you. And so that got me a lot of notoriety. Uh, I got to run, do a lot of things I probably wouldn't have gotten to do. Um, and then when I came back out of the service, outside of the idea that I was going to become a softball player, which is why I weighed 225 pounds now, uh, and I never did really become a softball player, you know, but running always became part of that system. I ran a lot of marathons, did things like that. You and I have been on a couple of long runs. And so when I was in high school, I got into working in a, one of the early running stores, Racket and Jog in Bethesda, Maryland. And I, I used to call on Bob Scherf and uh, Racket and Jog. Yeah, and uh, I think, you know, I probably wasn't the, the single greatest ever uh, employee of a retail store, but you learned a lot. Back then, we had about 15 running shoes. We also sold tennis, which I played, but I didn't really know a whole lot about. But mainly, I was on the running side with a guy named Bruce Robinson, who's up at Miles Ahead in New Jersey. And uh, Bruce was like a guru in the area and loved that guy. Uh, he was just an amazing athlete. So, you know, that's what I did all the way up until I joined the Army in 81, January of 81. I worked there. But when I came back out of the Army, uh, my plan was to go back to college and whatnot. But I also had this brilliant idea of getting married right as I came out of the service. And I no regrets there, but um, I needed a job. Like, I couldn't just leave the Army. I had to have something to do. So I went back to work at Racking and Jog. And I spent uh, the next eight years with them, approximately. And then that led to uh, a job at Brooks Sports. And uh, I've always said I probably shouldn't take the jobs I take because I just don't pay attention enough. I thought Brooks was like a big running company, and it wasn't. And we spent the next 10 years sort of battling our way back in. And um, I, I sort of overlapped Jim Weber for just about six months. Um, but, you know, we had to do a lot, a lot of hard work before Jim got there. And uh, it wasn't easy, as you know, trying to establish Mizuno. As a running brand but a lot of good people we worked really really hard got got brooks back on the map and now you can see where brooks is um, left there and went to work at fleet feet incorporated and again it was similar situation you know um, kind of a genius um, owner ceo type guy um, but didn't really have a lot of organization and a lot of really good franchises but nobody was really pulling together and so that's where i came in and spent i spent 14 years there and uh, loved loved it, um, but it got 
a little overwhelming and tiring towards the end. It's a, it's an intense business. It's 24 seven. Um, I know Fleafy gets dinged a lot for not being independent, but the owners are very independent. Even, even having diamond status on Delta doesn't make the travel any easier. No, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, spent a lot of time working on sales floors, you know, teaching people how to interact with customers, how to sell things. Um, you know, I'm very, I'm very proud of not only what we did at Fleet Feet, but we helped Belega uh, step up, Super Feet. Um, you know, we decided early on, we really thought shoes benefited from having a product like Super Feet in them. And so we worked really hard with the Super Feet team. And, um, you know, I think the year we started working with them, we did about two, we bought about 250,000 from Superfeed. And I know now Fleafy's doing well over 10 million plus with Superfeed, right? I mean, it's an incredible business and a great relationship. But, you know, those, those were fun things. But, it, you know, with the franchises having bad days, they call you in the middle of the night. You know, you never, you wake up, you hold one eye shut to see what kind of emails are coming through the email system. And I just, for me, uh, I was just getting tired. I loved it. But, you know, at, at some point you're thinking, I need some sanity. So I actually retired, right? Um, retired, sold my shares. And I, I probably wouldn't have lived very well, but I could have lived. Um, but CEP is part of Medi USA, and that's right here in the, um, the uh, North Carolina area. And the uh, president of Medi USA is a neighbor. And he said, hey, would you come over and help us, you know, kind of reorganize? And it was an interesting time because compression um, came into the marketplace as a fad. Uh, tall, you know, the socks part of it. it. It really was more faddish. People wore them, but I don't think people really understood the benefits. Um, and then um, it sort of began to fade, right? As, as it became harder and harder, there was a lot of competitors. Everybody was making something called a compression sock. And then unlike the medical side, where there's very strict laws, what you can call compression and what you can't call compression. In the athletic side, there is no rules whatsoever, uh, right? Because you're not looking for any sort of medical reimbursement. So the FDA isn't inspecting your claims. And that was just, it was eye-opening. So they had, they were struggling and as, as were a lot of compression brands. And so they asked if I come over and help them out. And like usual, I didn't know what I was doing when I took the job, but I've learned a lot in three years because now all of a sudden I had to look at everything from marketing to production to managing inventories to also we had to retool our sales team. You know, we, we've basically reconstructed the entire company and reoriented from that faddish, easy to sell to now we have to sell with a purpose. And uh, so it's, it's been good. I, I, and I, I, I've loved it. And it's less stressful, believe it or not, um, than what I was doing, but uh, just as enjoyable. But it's interesting the universe works in, in strange ways. Like, you know, to have that 14 years of, of uh, experience at Fleet Feet where you were building these vendor partnerships and how important those relationships were. And in many respects, that's how we got to know each other so well. And now to be on the other side, to be able to have that inform how CEP can do what it's doing is, is pretty cool. I didn't know this until the other day, but when I took you on a boondoggle with Adidas to Berlin, that, uh, that, that was your first exposure to CEP. Yeah, I had, uh, I had some post-tibial tendonitis for years and I was walking through the expo and, and got cornered by, um, 
a guy in a, you know, because I tried a lot of different types of compression. I wasn't really having any success. That's not uncommon. We talk to a lot of people who say, oh, I tried it. It didn't really do anything for me. I didn't understand it. I'm, I'm, even though I worked at Fleet Feet, I always joke that I wish I had spent more time on compression when I was at Fleet Feet. My life would be a lot simpler now. But, you know, we're all, all of us kind of use things without really fully understanding what the benefit is. All I knew is that when I started wearing CP after and I bought my first pair, which was unusual for me to buy anything in those days, but, um, you know, I, I took them out on my first run. I felt better. I said, you yeah, know, okay, that maybe this is going to work. And then a week and a half later, I didn't have a problem. The interesting thing is I only wore the sock on my right leg because that's where I had the, uh, the pain because I didn't want anyone to think I was wearing knee-high socks back then. Um, but, you know, now you flash forward and, uh, you know, I, I wear the product two or three times a week, the tall socks. I, we, we make other socks as well. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new fan of your, uh, your 80s crew sock, but, uh, but just yeah. to emphasize your point, I think oftentimes when you wear products like those, then you don't really understand, you know, the, the benefit. To me, yeah. it's just the simple, like noticing the difference, you know, and not noticing my feet. You know, when I have your product on and I'm running, it's as though I don't notice, like that's something I'm not paying attention to, where right. with variety of other socks that I have in my rotation, I'll notice my feet at about mile five. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I remember the, um, I, I go every year uh, with a number of people, actually some industry folks, Tom Abrams, uh, Dave Strasberg, uh, Dink Taylor from Fleet Feet Huntsville. But I've been going up to the JFK 50 off and on for 20 plus years and had run it three or four times before I wore my CP socks for the very first time. And it was very interesting afterwards because we always go out to a restaurant and then we go to a bar and I remember we get out of the car and yes you're, you're a little sore after 50 miles you can imagine but I get out of the car I'm walking towards the bar and next thing you know I'm like 25 yards ahead of everybody and I'm turn around and I realized oh yeah my legs don't feel as bad like they, 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 you feel them but they don't feel as bad and uh and so that was the first time I noticed something different and I've worn them all ever since. And I think the, you know, I've learned a lot from just that experience, right? Sometimes ignorance is bliss, but you start to realize the massive benefit to wearing compression is how quickly you can recover from really strenuous activity, which then allows you to do the activity more often. I think a lot of people think it's like, well, if I put it on, I'll be faster. Well, it's like steroids. You can take steroids. It won't make you hit the ball further. But if you if you work out like a maniac, which is what steroids allow you to do, then, yeah, you can. And this is sort of like a legalized version of that. And so, I've, I, you know, now I'm almost 60. hate to say that. Um, and I'm running with a bunch of guys who are a lot younger than I am. But, you know, I'm, I'm running two or so minutes faster now on my average pace than I was four or five years ago. And I honestly don't feel like I could do that if I wasn't wearing our products just because of the, you know, anyone that's getting up to our age, right? And you're not as old as I am, but still, right? You Sometimes you sit still for again. a few days. You sit still for a day and all of a sudden you're going like, oh, that hurts. And then why, why did it start hurting? It hurts for no reason. And so to be able to put on a pair of compression shorts when my hips are bothering me or to put on, uh, you know, whenever my legs feel dead, put on my tall socks and get out there. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been nice. And, and, and it's funny, I go back to that hate-love relationship with running. 
and I still hate it sometimes. And I, I joke with you all the time, the best step of every run I've ever been on is the last step. Um, but, you know, to be able to still go at 50 years of running and still be able to get out there and do it is, you know, it's a tribute to the products now. You, you can wear shoes and otherwise, but compression. But I think there's a generational, you know, uh, piece to this too, is, you know, my dad's generation and, and as a coach and coaching stick and ball sports, running was always punishment. Um, you know, the, the approach was, you know, you don't stretch, you start slow, you, you know, do these things. If you feel injured, you, 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 you know, you jog it off and, you know, things of that nature. And now I realize that, you know, everything from rolling out my back to, you know, rolling out my legs, to, you know, the other products that can help with recovery that, uh, you know, all these things that, you know, his generation would have been like, that's gimmicky, just suck it up and go, you know, I'm like, well, oh, yeah. I'm still doing it. So. Well, you remember we used to refer to stretching as stretching. Like, why would you ever do that? Now, you know, now I find myself stretching before I go to sleep. At night. <laughs> like, I have my legs up, yeah, hamstrings a little tight. And, yeah, the world's changed. But, you know, Mike, we, the other thing you and I both have experienced is, you know, the, my brother uh, Billy ran through the 60s and 70s, and then he couldn't run anymore, destroyed his knees. The product today is so good. Um, that you could you can literally start running now and take care of yourself so well with better shoes and better things like socks and all the, the advancements that have been made the nutrition right and you can you can run now for a long time and I you know I feel blessed and a lot of it I know is probably just genetics that my knees and everything have kind of held up for 50 years but I can see myself doing this for another 20 years maybe not very far and maybe not very fast but i don't see any reason why i couldn't run you know into my late 70s early 80s uh well and that's something i never would have thought about when i was watching you know 30 year olds and 40 year olds back in the 70s it looked like they were decrepit right because the product was horrible back then and now it's fantastic I'll, I'll never forget, uh, and it, it comes to mind because we were interviewing Michael Pivido the other day, who's doing some yes. really cool and interesting things. But when I first got to Adidas and we were in the running, you know, the business unit trying to figure out how we could possibly reset things, uh, HBO Real Sports came along and uh, and uh, was doing a whole story, and, and I can't remember... Uh, Oh gosh, it's one of their key reporters came in who's the investigative guy that's usually hardcore. And Pivido is great, but he had some line about the whole barefoot craze, you know, like you, you know, you can you can run, you know, barefooted or I'll I'll butcher his line to the the whole thing, but you know, how how few people are now running barefoot, you know, like you know, it makes sense if you're an indigenous people in Mexico that has been doing it your whole life and your biomechanics, you know, reflect that that's what you do, but Right now, even with the pandemic and a number of people that have, you know, started running that weren't running prior to the pandemic, you know, the equipment is a, a big piece of it because we do sit so much. Yeah, you, you know, we do. And, and, you know, running is a brutal sport. I mean, it's a lot of pounding out there. But I, I remember in my early days at Brooks, we had a, a whole slew of Kenyan guys that we ended up hooking up with and working with. And they were good runners. They love shoes. Like, I, you know, I used to go like, well, don't you, didn't you guys grow up running barefoot? No, 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 no. We don't like running barefoot. And then, you know, so they were, they were just running in crappy shoes. And then these are a bunch of 16, 17, 18 year old guys and they love shoes. And, you know, but I, I think it's the protection that offers, right? You know, however you believe, you know, the human body was created, it, you know, we're not made to run on flat, hard, 
surfaces. That's the big issue. But I, I, you know, back during that craze, my favorite line was, is like, oh, well, you know, this is nothing new, you know, these old uh, uh, low profile shoes and, you know, barefoot running. And I said, that's, that was basically every shoe pre-1973 when Brooks created EVA, right? Every shoe before that was just a slab of runner rubber under your foot. And that's the shoes my brother ran in that, you know, destroyed him. Yeah, and, flyers. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah, right. You know, Converse. We lived near the Converse factories. Up, uh, we drive up to New Hampshire to the Converse factories. And, um, you know, so we, I think, you know, today it's a great blessing. And I think that's where, you know, the value of a specialty running store comes in because you can go in, get really solid advice, and it, it begins to inform your activities. It allows you to feel better when you're done running because that's the key, right? You, we all feel mentally better when we finish a hard workout, but you want to be able to walk and bend over and do things for your day, which, you know, when you're 20, let's face it. Untie un- un- your shoes. After yeah, untie your shoes. Well, and, you know, and, and we're all arrogant. When we're 20, we're going to, we're going to be this way where you look at other people and like, I'll never be like that. And then by the time you're 30, you're like, Oh, this isn't as easy as I thought it would be. And by the time you're 40, you're well aware of your humanity. And, you know, I think now that's, that's the thing. Like if I could have taken care of myself better when I was in my early twenties and running better things, and I was fortunate way being stationed at Bragg, you're on soft sand. Right. So I, I you know, I had three or four years in my twenties, early twenties where I wasn't beating myself up on hard uh, roadway. And I think now you have a lot of people off road running on trails and things like that. And that's also having that same effect of, of offering, um, a benefit there but um uh let's see here uh, you're fine uh hey okay. so we had we had matt powell on the other day and we were talking about just you know what what's happening in the industry you know i mean the, the whole idea of the retail apocalypse has been talked about for quite some time <laughs> and then you know we 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 get hit with uh uh with covid as somebody that is you know specific to the run industry works so close with retail you know, what, what do you kind of foresee being the uh, the future here? I mean, I'm sure some stores are going to have to close, but what, what are you actually hearing and seeing from those that have strong communities? Well, you know, they, it, they're surviving, but they're not thriving for sure. Um, you know, the lack of personal contact is, is, is sort of made this a footwear oriented business again. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of all the stuff we were just talking about. It's really the footwear is important, but it's the other essential type products that you need, the socks and all those other things. So I think that, you know, especially in the short term, it's going to be much less personal, right? You can't tie somebody's shoe for them. Um, you know, you can't measure them. Uh, you can do valuation uh, of them, right? Because you have either devices or, or just visually watching them but it's going to be less personal. I think there's going to be uh, that more reliance on footwear sales is going to continue at least for the foreseeable future, right? Because you can't socially distance and tie somebody's shoe. But then I also think that, um, you know, a lot of specialty retailers over the years have had a broken financial model and it's difficult, you know, to make money in running because you can either sink too much money into inventory or you're not selling enough um, beyond footwear, right? So your apparel sales suffer, your essential sales suffer. And I think that for years, people were able to survive on that shoe sale only, but that's a broken model. And now you have a lot more people having to rely strictly on the shoe sale 
um, only. And I think that I, I think it's going to be tough. So I don't know what the attrition rate will be, but I do think you're going to see some fallout of retailers. And would you agree a lot of the, the, the better performing stores have also been stores that have race management businesses or event businesses that allow yeah. them to kind of absorb moments like this? Yeah, they, they, their augmentation of their business model through those race management uh, you know, programs and things like that. Or event, owning an event can be very healthy for you. You know, wasn't the case in 1970 where it was free, but you know, now you can pay a lot of money to do an event. And those are all suspended. So that, that's those, that cash flow is gone right now for those businesses too. So, you know, they've got to figure out how to make the model work. And, you know, the other thing you want to do, be able to do is pay your people. And so there's a lot of that. And I know, you know, some of the stores have suffered where people are like, well, no, I'm making more money on unemployment, so I'm not going to come back yet. Um, but it's just so hard to predict. I mean, I've, I've heard of stores who've reopened in some of the more open states that have hit uh, really good numbers, but I think that's more exception than the rule. And I think the vast majority of stores are in states that are only partially opened and they've got reduced hours or people just don't feel safe, right? Because it's one thing to open your door wide up, but somebody's got to feel safe enough to come see you. And, you know, so I, I've heard different numbers and I was talking to a, a fellow two weeks ago who has his total volume in just pure retail sales was $3 million last year. And he was already off $600,000 in revenue for this year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is somebody who employs a lot of people who does a lot of good work, but you know, how are you going to make up $600,000 in revenue? And you're just not. And I think the other side of it that we'll see how this plays out is a lot of the folks with the larger volume stores have been doing this a lot longer and they were on that, like, ready to take the glide path out, right? Because specialty running is a brutal 24-hour business, right? I managed 14 years working back in that world with Flea Feet, but I wasn't owning a store and having to be there every Saturday morning for a run or be there on Tuesday night for a pub run or worrying because people didn't show up on a Wednesday or whatever. And... I think there are there are some specialty store owners who sit back and let staff take care of business, but I think most of the best store owners that I know, and you know this as well as I do, they're in their businesses minimum six days a week and probably seven to eight hours every single day. And I'm being nice because a lot of them actually work seven days a week. Right? So that's the, you know, and now they're looking at the loss of revenue. They're looking at having to start over again. You know, I. It, you haven't seen landlords step up and say, Hey, we understand what you're doing, going through. So let's take a, when we'll give you a three month break on paying rent. And so, you know, th there's a lot of cost there that they still have to absorb. And uh, I don't know, I, I've known the specialty running business all my professional life and I hope it, it comes through it and, and, and it will, but I, it'll just be different and there'll be some loss. Do you think, and, and we've had some conversations, we have, a, you know, an interview coming out with uh, the CEO of Echelon Fitness and, you know, so much because of what's happened with the pandemic, you know, the adoption and the embrace of things like Peloton and Echelon and, you know, connected home fitness. And then, but prior to that happening, you saw, you know, the growth of Orange Theory Fitness and, you know, where running was part of the actual, you know, boutique fitness experience. Um, with all of this change, you know, on the uh, retail real estate landscape, 
is there an opportunity for retailers in the future to kind of bring together a, a daily activity that could be a revenue generator that then lives within that environment or experience that sells shoes and apparel and other things? I think, I think the opportunity is there, but it's going to take a really dynamic uh, leader to figure out how to do that. Because one of the issues you run into in the, the specialty running format is the shoe fitting is so intensive, right? And it's, a no, it's also a number one dissatisfier, right? If you, if you show up on a busy Saturday to a really busy specialty running store, and the best, let's face it, the best stores are really busy on a Saturday. You pull up and there's 30 people there and 20 might be getting fit and 10 are waiting and so you, you can, you, as an owner, you're like going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really focus on my apparel business. So I'm going to have Jane over here in the apparel area and I'm going to Billy Bob be your greeter. But the next thing you know, Billy Bob and Jane are fitting people on the shoe floor because that's the primary dissatisfier. And, you know, you get, you get sucked into it. And so my fear would be that people don't have enough discipline to go through the tough time, right? Because if you start that concept that you're talking about, it's going to take time for that to really mesh and to work out well. And what they're going to be looking at is saying, well, I only had two people working out with you today. So I need you on the shoe fitting stool, you know, for the rest of the day. And let's face it, the people who are going to drive an orange theory, they don't want to sit on a fitting stool all day. And, um, you know, so I don't know, I think it's a, it's a brilliant idea if somebody can figure out how to pull it off without that pressure that the, the shoe sale just, dictates everything in a running store right and so how do you how do you manage to develop all that that's the nice thing about the you were talking about the race management services it's off-site it's away right so they can't tell the guy on the finish line to go over and fit shoes right because he's over on a finish line 20 miles away and i think that that's that would be the only danger of trying to merge that sort of orange theory with the, the really good specialty running shop is how do you how do you treat the two businesses separately from a service standpoint? I just don't know that they have the discipline to do that because I've seen it. It's just too hard. The shoe floor is a magnet and just pulls everybody in. Nice. Well, hey, I'll get you out of here on this because he's an ambassador of yours, but Meb, who I think many in the run specialty world have, have come to love and respect for many, many reasons, is someone uh, we're producing a podcast for one of his other um, uh, sponsors. And I would just be curious from your perspective, what would be something I should ask Meb when I get the opportunity to speak to him? So, you know, well, obviously anyone who knows Meb knows his running side. Um, what I'm amazed with Meb is his ability to recall a face and a story associated with that face. And, and it's real. Like it's not this, it's not synthetic at all. And, um, I remember when he won the Boston Marathon in 2014, I was sitting with my sister who was dying of brain cancer, Dottie, the one who got me into running. And he came down to Carborough about a month and a half later, and I met him for the very first time personally uh, when I was with Fleet Feet. And I told him that that's how I had watched him, right? Because, you know, I was up actually with Adidas at the marathon but I chose to be with my sister and seeing the smile on her face, it made it all worthwhile. I have no regrets missing Meb in person. Um, but I told him that story and told him how much that had meant to her and she had passed away shortly after. So then flash forward, that was 2014. So then in 2017, August, 
I'm traveling with Mebs. First time I've really been around them as part of CEP and I'm going through New York visiting different, um, you know, magazines and things because Mev was, had announced that he was going to retire. By the way, we still sponsor him as a retired athlete. One of the best things ever is working with Mev. So, um, you know, and he, so he, he's very pretty. He's asking, he goes, he goes, so he said, he goes, I remember the story about your sister. I was like, what? Like, you what? Like, I'm one of, like, how many people have you met? And, okay. you know, so he he told me stories about how he, he'd be running through Tampa and people would wave at him and stop him and say hello. And then they'd see him three years later at the Boston Marathon and they'd stop him again and go, you probably don't remember me. And he goes, oh, Tampa, you know, you were running down this road. And I don't know how he does that, but I think it's, it's a, a – um, it's an insight into who he is as a man and a person that he is somebody that loves life and he loves people and it, it matters to him. You know, I'm lucky I can remember your name, but he can seem to remember things from, you know, years ago that, you know, are very meaningful to you, but you wouldn't think they were that meaningful to him because he has that experience probably 45 times a day. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really, ask really about, cool. Ask him about that. Yeah. No, not about I, my sister, but ask him about his ability to recall. Yeah. No, I, I will. Well, hey, uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. I uh, got to spend a lot of time at those events with you and certainly value our friendship and partnership and other things. And uh, it seems like we'll, we're going to find some other ways to work together. Yeah, I think so. Cool. Thank you, Luke Rowe. All right. Thanks, Mike. You can subscribe to this podcast on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it.